0: We talked about that in the last episode. Reuben should have been the head of the tribes of Israel, but he was not. That honor was transferred to Ephraim. Now, since these stories are preserved and transmitted as archetypal stories, that is to say, stories that portray for us the general picture and pattern of faith, we want to stop and think about this. It it is worth noting that Reuben is not cast out of the family because of his actions, but he does lose honors and rewards that could have been his. And this reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 13-15. He's talking about a day of judgment for believers when our work and conduct will be evaluated. And he says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul talks there about people who are still saved, but who have squandered their opportunities and forfeited their rewards and who will enter heaven like a naked man escaping from a fire. And that sounds like Reuben here, doesn't it? He's not being kicked out of the family. He's not being denied a share in the promised land, but he has forfeited reward and honor. Hear that. While it is true that a real believer cannot lose his or her salvation, it is equally true that through unruly, undisciplined, unwise behavior, a real believer can forfeit, honor, dignity, and and reward. We see that in the Old Testament and in the New.
1: Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The stories we've been reading in Genesis are archetypal stories. That is to say, they tell us what did happen and they tell us what does happen. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your Word is a lamp unto
0: my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 49. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Jacob's last words are part prophecy and part blessing. Derek Kidner refers to them as potent as well as informative. So he is seeing the future, but there's also a sense in which he is shaping the future by the words that he speaks. Verse two, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. The word translated there as unstable is the same word used in Judges 9.4 to describe an unruly mob. So Jacob is saying that Reuben is a man of uncontrolled passions, and as a result of his rash and unruly actions, he has lost the position and honor that was his birthright. We talked about that in the last episode. Reuben should have been the head of the tribes of Israel, but he was not. That honor was transferred to Ephraim. Now, since these stories are preserved and transmitted as archetypal stories, that is to say, stories that portray for us the general picture and pattern of faith, we want to stop and think about this. It it is worth noting that Reuben is not cast out of the family because of his actions, but he does lose honors and rewards that could have been his. And this reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians three thirteen to 15 He's talking about a day of judgment for believers when our work and conduct will be evaluated. And he says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul talks there about people who are still saved, but who have squandered their opportunities and forfeited their rewards and who will enter heaven like a naked man escaping from a fire. And that sounds like Reuben here, doesn't it? He's not being kicked out of the family. He's not being denied a share in the promised land, but he has forfeited reward and honor. Hear that. While it is true that a real believer cannot lose his or her salvation, it is equally true that through unruly, undisciplined, unwise behavior, a real believer can forfeit, honor, dignity, and And reward. We see that in the Old Testament and in the New. Verse 5 goes on to say, Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence, are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. This oracle refers back to the massacre of the Shechemites in Genesis 34. You remember that story. Dinah, their sister, had been raped by the young prince of Shechem, and the brothers tricked the men of the city into undergoing ritual circumcision. And while they were recovering, Simeon and Levi went in and struck them down to a man. They acted out of rage and spite. Jacob talks about how they hamstrung the oxen. Well, that was obviously not necessary. The oxen were not to blame for the violence done to their sister. This is uncontrolled spite and malice. And while the text made no specific comment on it back in Genesis 34, here we note that the judge of all things has seen and observed and rendered judgment. The judgment is that both Simeon and Levi shall be scattered among their brethren. Now, it is interesting to note how that happened. The tribe of Simeon appears to have simply disintegrated. They intermarried and more or less dissolved into the other tribes, mostly in Judah, but also some in the north. But Levi, through an act of loyalty and virtue in Exodus, won for himself an honorable dispersion. The tribe of Levi was scattered through their brethren with a ministry, a calling, and a blessing. And this reminds us that while God is sovereign, people are responsible agents, and we can choose to turn our punishments into opportunities. We can choose to glorify God in our afflictions and turn our chastisements into a calling. Levi did that, and so can we. Verse 8 goes on to say, And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, this is probably the most important paragraph in the chapter, but it is not without some difficulty with respect to translation. In fact, this whole chapter is hard to translate. Part of that is because it's written as poetry. We mentioned way back in the episodes dealing with chapter 1 and 2 that those passages are not written as poetry, despite that sometimes people say that they are. But Hebrew scholars know better. In fact, the JPS Torah commentary says about this chapter, chapter 49, that this document, specifically verses 1 to 27, is the first sustained piece of Hebrew poetry in the Torah. So, as we said, Hebrew scholars do not consider chapter 1 and 2 to be poetry. But they do clearly understand this chapter, chapter 49, as poetry. And poetry is harder to translate into English. So there are problems here. Verses 8 and 9 are fairly straightforward. Jacob is predicting the preeminence and headship of Judah. Reuben has been disqualified. Simeon and Levi, the next oldest, have also been disqualified. Therefore, headship will rest on Judah. Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons shall bow down for you. Jacob is predicting that Judah will rule over the other tribes. And of course, eventually that did happen. Judah grew during the wilderness wanderings and became the most powerful tribe. And Judah produced the Davidic line of kings. So that seems to be what verses 8 and 9 are predicting. However, verse 10 is not so clear cut. The first part seems reasonably easy to understand. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Scholars debate exactly what that means and what the scepter shall be between his feet. Some see that as a poetic description of a king seated on his throne with his scepter resting on the ground between his feet. Others understand it as a poetic euphemism referring to the king's sexual parts and therefore referring to his issue or line, meaning that Judah will not fail to produce a male king through the line. Either way, The prediction is that kings will be produced through Judah and rule will be exercised by Judah. And then we get to the part that is very confusing and heatedly debated. About halfway through verse 10 in the ESV, you have the word until, as in until tribute comes. Some translations render that, so that, as in so that something comes. It is the Hebrew ad-ki, and it is used to express the leading up to a climactic passage. It is a literary indicator. The JPS Torah commentary says, It seems to mean that Judah will exercise hegemony over the tribes for a period of time leading up to some climactic event. What exactly that climactic event will be is debated. Again, the problem is that the words are very hard to translate. The next Hebrew words in the verse are Yavo Shiloh. And to be perfectly honest with you, we have no idea what that means. Again, the JPS Torah commentary says the Hebrew Yavo Shiloh is wholly obscure. Neither the subject of the verb nor the meaning of Shiloh is clear. We don't know. And that's why you get a variety of translations. The ESV has it, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. The old King James Version just leaves the word Shiloh untranslated. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And that may in fact be the better translation. The word Shiloh seems to have been understood as a sort of code word for Messiah by the early Jews. There are Qumram texts and Targums that understand it that way, but most importantly of all, that seems to be how Ezekiel understood it. In Ezekiel 21, verses 26 to 27, he says, Remove the turban. Take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes. The one to whom judgment belongs, I will give it to him. So Ezekiel prophesies that the, that the rule of Judah will be overthrown, that it will come to ruin until the one comes to whom it properly belongs. And he makes that prophecy by referring to Genesis 49.10. Let me read to you what the Tyndale Old Testament commentary on Ezekiel 21 says about that passage. It says, so Ezekiel spells out the overthrow of the kingly line and he concludes with a cryptic reference back to Genesis 49.10 with its distant prospect of the one who had always been expected and to whom the right of kingship genuinely belonged. When he eventually appears, the crown and diadem will be given to him, for he will be the culmination of everything to which the Davidic house and the messianic kingship in Israel have always pointed. Closed quote. So Genesis 49.10 was used by Ezekiel to prophesy that a Messiah will come from the line of Judah, which has been allowed to lie in the dust. Thus, the word Shiloh means, in some way, Messiah. It refers to Jesus. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Thanks be to God. Verse 13 says, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. You'll notice that the rest of these oracles are short. The main oracles are the one given to Judah, which we have just discussed, and the one given to Joseph. Between the two, they received 10 of the 24 lines of poetry. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, And that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Now, a great deal of this is lost in translation. For example, in verse 19, four of the six Hebrew words of the verse are either Gad's name or word plays on Gad's name. You can't translate that into English and retain the beauty or the balance of the statements. We just get the gist. Verse 22 takes us into the next substantial oracle Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers." Hebrew poetry is built on parallelisms and double entendre. And I love the double meaning of that last phrase. Joseph was indeed set apart from his brothers. They threw him down a well and sold him into Egypt. But here he is set apart for a special blessing. He is singled out for extended words of comfort and promise. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf In the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil, all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. To the last, Jacob has been thinking about the future. In this life, he was always a traveler, always a pilgrim, and always on the move. He was looking forward to the city whose architect and builder was the Lord. And here we see him finally going
1: home. Thanks be to God. Well, I wanted to let the program audio roll right through to the end again here, in part because all of chapter 49 is telling one story, the story of Jacob's prophecies and blessings over each of his children. But I want to come back to something we played at the very start of this episode. You said, Pastor Paul, quote, these stories are preserved and transmitted as archetypal stories. That is to say, stories that portray for us the general picture and pattern of faith, end quote. Maybe unpack that a little bit for us, because I think understanding that is, in fact, one of the keys to understanding the book of Genesis as a whole.
0: Yeah, and you could probably broaden that out and say that it is one of the keys to understanding the Bible as a whole. When we talk about archetypal stories— To be clear, we're not saying that these things didn't actually happen. I believe they did. But I also believe that they were ordained and preserved by the action and inspiration of the Holy Spirit because they set out for us the pattern and shape of the life of faith. A story can be true in more than one way. It is true, for example, that Reuben slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. That actually happened. And it is true that as a result of that, he was not kicked out of the family, but he did lose honor and reward. That is true. All of that is true in a historical sense, but it is also true in an archetypal sense. It is true in the sense that it illustrates that real believers can do really sinful and stupid things that don't re- result in the loss of their salvation, but that do result in in the loss of honor and reward in eternity.
1: Yeah, I think that's such a helpful distinction. And that doesn't just apply to the story of Reuben. That applies to all the stories recorded in Genesis.
0: Yeah, exactly right. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, "'For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, "'that our fathers were all under the cloud, "'and all passed through the sea, "'and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, "'and all ate the same spiritual food, "'and all drank the same spiritual drink.'" for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, in that passage, he's referring to the stories recorded in Exodus, but the same principle applies to the stories in Genesis. They are our stories, they serve as patterns and examples for all of us.
1: So these stories teach. They aren't just meant to entertain and inform.
0: Yeah, and, and of course, as Bible readers and New Testament Christians, we get that. Jesus taught with stories all the time. Stories are the best teachers. Stories bring us in, and they hook us. And then like with the story that Nathan told to King David, at the end of the story, the Holy Spirit points his finger at us and says, you are the man. This is a
1: story about you. Yeah, exactly. I remember that. Nathan tells this story to David about a rich guy who owned a thousand sheep. And then when his friend comes over to visit, he stole the sheep from his poor neighbor, the only sheep the poor guy had, a sheep that he was raising as a pet for his kids in his house. He stole it, killed it, and served it to his guest as a meal. Well, David's outraged at this cruelty and injustice, and he wanted to kill the guy. And Nathan says, you are the man. That's what you did. You stole your neighbor's wife, even though you already had a wife. You had a bunch of wives because you're the king. But you used your power to abuse and rob another. Yeah, and David was devastated
0: by that story. It told him the truth about his heart in a way that no sermon ever could.
1: Yeah, I imagine if Nathan showed up and preached a sermon outside David's bedroom window, he may not have fared as well as he did. No, I imagine not. <laughs> stories can get to
0: us in a way that straight-up laws or propositions probably can't. But, of course, all of those things, all, all of those genres have their place. The Bible has laws, and it it has propositions, and it has stories, thanks be to God.
1: All right, that's awesome. Now, speaking of other types of biblical literature, we've been talking about in how just two weeks we are switching gears and jumping into an altogether different part of the Bible. We're going to be reading First and Second Peter. Those are letters that Peter wrote to actual churches, right? Yeah. Scholars call them epistles usually, but you're absolutely correct. They are letters that Peter wrote to real churches. So how is a letter then different than a book of narrative? Well, letters are
0: occasional, meaning they're written for a specific reason. Most of the letters in the New Testament were actually written to correct an error or a harmful practice that had crept into a particular church. So, Thank God for dysfunctional churches. If the churches in the first generation had been perfect, we'd be missing about half
1: of what we call the New Testament. (laughs) Yeah, that's neat. I never thought of it that way. Thank God for messed up churches. Yeah, messed up churches
0: 2,000 years ago, right? Right. I I think we're all praying for fewer messed up churches now, uh, or more healthy churches now, however you want to think about that.
1: Right on. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to hearing how our story ends in the book of Genesis, which we'll be talking about next week. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your Word